Welcome back everyone to Explain MD. Today we're discussing gout. Gout is a type of arthritis. Gout is also called monosodium urate crystal deposition disease. I've never heard this phrase used in practice, even in the hospital, but I mention it because that phrase tells you what gout is all about. Gout is characterized by excess uric acid floating around in the bloodstream. So if someone without gout gets their blood drawn and a uric acid level is checked, chances are that their level will be normal. If someone with gout gets their blood drawn and the uric acid level is checked, chances are their level will be high. But why is having high uric acid level in the bloodstream even a problem? Well, one of the reasons is the focus of our talk today. Uric acid can precipitate into crystals. Those crystals then settle in the joints. That can cause an arthritis called gout, which leads sometimes to one joint getting repeatedly severely inflamed or several joints being at least mild to moderately inflamed pretty much all the time. Another reason that high uric acid levels in the blood can be a problem is because uric acid crystals can also accumulate to such an extent that it actually causes a noticeable abnormality in the joint while you're looking at it. For example, it can cause a bulge or a nodule to form off of a joint that's frequently affected by gout flares. That bulge is called a tophus, spelled T-O-P-H-U-S. And despite how that sounds, these don't only occur on the toes, but more on that later. Another reason that gout can be an issue is because of something we discussed in a previous episode. It can cause kidney stones. It can also lead to chronic kidney damage, and we'll discuss this in more detail. Having high uric acid levels in the bloodstream is a necessary component of being diagnosed with gout. But for a lot of people, it's often not the only reason they display symptoms of gout. In fact, most people with high uric acid levels in their blood never experience any manifestation of it, including no gout flares, no kidney stones, no kidney damage or damage to other organs. A gout flare typically affects one joint. That one joint is very inflamed, usually red, swollen, warm, and very tender to touch. In fact, a lot of people even say that a thin bed sheet draped over the joint is very painful. Many times you'll see gout in the legs. The most common place I've seen affected is the big toe, but it can affect the ankles and the knees. And I've also seen it in the upper body, such as the elbow, the wrist, and the hand joints. Occasionally, gout can affect multiple joints at once. This is more likely to occur in patients who have had this disease for many years. What gout actually involves is uric acid, which is precipitated into crystals, which then get stuck and they sit in a joint. With each gout flare, you get more uric acid crystals sitting in that joint. So you can imagine that after many years of having gout and therefore many flares, some of those crystals are permanently in place or you have layers of them. Having those crystals permanently placed or having them in layers likely will have caused damage to the joint that was originally smooth and round. So the deposits of that crystal are going to be irregular and not smooth. The joint, which was originally smooth, will also get rough and bumpy. So the whole joint after many years can look rough and bumpy. And you can sometimes tell just by looking at someone's joint that it's large and irregularly shaped and guess 
that they probably have gout. Now remember I used that word tophus before? So a tophus is a hard bump or a nodule that forms as a result of repeated crystal deposition and layering. You can have more than one tophus, but the plural form of tophus is tophi, which is spelled T-O-P-H-I. So someone who gets frequent gout flares only in the left elbow, for example, may develop a tophus there. But in someone who gets flares in multiple joints, either all at once or at different time, but has them frequently, may develop tophi. People diagnosed with gout are considered to have this as a permanent and constant condition, something to be listed on your medical history when you're at the doctor's office, for example. But you may not be showing symptoms of gout all the time. When you show symptoms of gout, like the swollen right joints, that is called a gout flare. There are a number of things that can trigger gout flares, and everyone is different, so their triggers can be different from one another. There are several medical conditions and lifestyle factors that present a risk for developing gout or developing a gout flare. Some of those include consuming too much alcohol, consuming large amounts of meat or seafood, having a lot of sugary foods or drinks, things like sodas, obesity, having high blood pressure, or having kidney problems already, and sometimes certain medications like diuretics, which are a class of medications traditionally used to treat high blood pressure. Now notice that I mentioned that chronic kidney disease can be a factor in having a gout flare. It can also be caused by gout because after years of trying to filter uric acid crystals, the kidneys suffer damage from all of that hard work. Remember, crystals are hard, irregularly shaped, sharp, and pointy. We'll touch base on crystals again later. Also, the first couple of points I mentioned were regarding diet, the high alcohol use, and the one I want to focus on here is the large amount of meat or, or seafood. The thing is, following a particular diet is something your doctor will probably counsel you on. But if you're eating a well-rounded, nutritious diet with fruits and vegetables and few fatty foods, you're generally doing what you need to. But some studies did show a correlation of high uric acid levels in the blood with foods that are heavy in the amino acid purine. Amino acids are the building blocks for proteins. You may remember me talking about this in a previous ExplainMD episode on kidney stones. So while we usually still counsel on diet and we advise minimizing meat or seafood intake for patients with gout, it has been difficult in studies to consistently show that following a meat or seafood heavy diet induces gout flares in everyone. There is usually a combination of factors that contributes, and if someone is on a medication to lower uric acid levels, that is often helpful enough in preventing a gout flare for someone who does occasionally splurge on a lot of red meat or seafood. In other words, medications will usually keep the gout at bay. The following conditions can trigger flares by increasing how much uric acid is circulating in the bloodstream or by triggering inflammation of other cells, which then interact with uric acid crystals that are already deposited in the joints. So these conditions include things like trauma or surgery, starvation, dehydration, or ingestion of certain drugs, including medicines that are traditionally used to treat gout, or like I mentioned before, certain diuretics. 
Patients with another form of arthritis, such as osteoarthritis, already have irregularly shaped rough joints. So if they happen to have high uric acid levels in their bloodstream too, which can then coalesce to form crystals, those crystals can basically catch on to the irregular surface of the joints and get stuck there. Crystals have angles and long edges and points, so it's likely they will bump into a joint and snag onto one, especially if that joint has relatively jagged edges itself. People in this situation can end up with osteoarthritis and gout arthritis. When starting a medicine that reduces uric acid levels in the blood, you can get a gout flare in that early period. It will ultimately reduce uric acid levels in the blood in the long term, but when starting off, that medicine may trigger a flare. So in that time period, we advise patients to do everything else that they can to reduce how much uric acid is floating around in their bloodstream. And that may mean, again, emphasizing the importance of staying active, keeping a healthy weight, avoiding alcohol, and even avoiding too much red meat or seafood. Anything that we can advise to reduce the risk of a flare. Usually it's because of several of these factors working in combination that a patient gets a flare. For example, if someone just had a surgery and they've not been eating or drinking very much since then, and they happen to be one of those people who have high uric acid levels in their blood, that gives them four risk factors to develop a gout flare. The four risk factors being surgery, starvation, dehydration, and elevated uric acid levels. Gout flares also most frequently occur overnight and in the early morning. Seems like the peak times are between midnight and 8 a.m. Now when a gout flare comes on, it often reaches its peak pain, redness, warmth, and swelling within 12 to 24 hours of the onset of symptoms. It can take days to weeks to resolve. This can be sped up with medications most times. When someone comes in with a gout flare, it can look like several other conditions and we try to be certain about the diagnosis before treatment. For example, gout arthritis can look like a different type of arthritis like osteoarthritis or rheumatoid arthritis, or it could be a septic arthritis, which is an infection in the joint, or it could be a bursitis. Bursitis is an inflammation of fluid in the joint space from prolonged pressure on the joint, from overuse and other, other causes. Gout arthritis can also look like a cellulitis, which is an infection of the skin. Maybe that happens to be overlying the joint. And gout can also be confused with pseudogout, among other things. Pseudogout, by the way, means fake gout or pretend gout, and that's when calcium crystals deposit into the joints rather than uric acid crystals. Irregular painful joints, in general, can be due to trauma or a tumor. There are lots of examples. So it can be tricky to diagnose gout at those times, especially if the gout flare is occurring in an uncommon joint, like a shoulder or along the spine. When gout occurs in the spine, it can lead to nerve pain or nerve damage symptoms, which then confuses the picture further. If a patient has multiple joints in a gout flare, again, this is less common than having one joint affected, but it can happen later in the course of the disease, at an older age, or if a patient went most of their life without medicine to prevent or treat flares, sometimes having that gout in multiple joints is accompanied by fevers. So then this can make the diagnosis difficult because it could look like infection somewhere in the body rather than a gout flare. Gout in multiple joints usually involves a cluster of joints that are close together and it can extend into nearby tendons. 
So we talked about what causes gout on the most basic level, the high uric acid levels. And we talked about triggers for gout in combination with that high uric acid level. We also talked about how gout can be difficult to diagnose because it can look like several other medical conditions and because the triggers differ for different people. Now we're gonna move on to talking about the diagnosis of gout. How do we actually reach that diagnosis? First, I wanna explain the pattern of gout. Gout is usually characterized by flares that can happen days, weeks, or months apart, sometimes even years, and periods in between that are completely without symptom, without pain, without swelling, everything is working normally. So the period between gout flares is called the intercritical period. Every period is called an intercritical period. And for most people, this time is completely without symptoms, like I said. The pattern of having flares of pain and periods of no pain at all can help us to decide on the cause of someone's arthritis because conditions like osteoarthritis are usually characterized by more constant pain. And a septic or infectious arthritis is unlikely to get better and worse repeatedly or go away completely and then keep coming back after certain periods of time. This takes us to the question, how do we diagnose gout? So first of all, the person's pattern of pain and flares, other medical conditions, and even family history can help us to diagnose gout for the first time. Sometimes that's all that's needed, and if we have a pretty high confidence level that gout is the answer, that's all that we use in order to make the diagnosis. Now, it used to be thought that measuring the blood uric acid levels of someone with pain and inflammation in a joint, and that uric acid level being high, means that they're having a gout flare. However, since we learned that many people have high uric acid levels all the time and they don't have symptoms, we can't necessarily equate a high reading of uric acid with a definite gout flare. What's more, we found that among people who are experiencing a gout flare, measuring blood uric acid levels at that time can show high, normal, or even low levels of uric acid. We don't have all the details figured out as to why this may be the case, but there are several theories as to how someone in a gout flare can have a low reading of uric acid level at that time, even though it's high at all other times. One way that patients may get a gout flare is if they've been recently started on a medicine to reduce uric acid levels in the blood in hopes to prevent future flares. Remember, I said sometimes those medicines can trigger a gout flare when you first start taking them. But because the medicine is also doing its job, your uric acid level may be normal or low when it's checked during a flare. So that confuses the picture. The most accurate time to measure blood uric acid levels and establish a baseline value is at least two weeks after a gout flare has completely resolved. Now the best way to diagnose gout is to actually get a sample of the fluid that's built up in the joint space. We always have a little gel type fluid in the joint space to keep the joint moving smoothly. But with any kind of inflammation, whether that's from infection, trauma, crystals like uric acid or calcium, etc., the amount of fluid increases, builds up, and it leads to swelling and warmth. Getting a sample of that fluid involves inserting a very thin needle attached to a syringe into the joint space and sucking out some of the fluid directly into the syringe. This can help joint pain a lot, but also that fluid sample can be examined in the lab to see what's floating around inside. 
We look for bacteria in case this is an infection. We look for blood and we also look for crystals. Now those crystals can be examined under a microscope. Uric acid crystals and calcium crystals are shaped differently and they glow different colors when exposed to different types of light. So the shape and the color of the crystals allows us to identify exactly what kind of crystal it is and therefore we can make the correct diagnosis. If we don't see any crystals but we do see bacteria, then we know it's an infectious arthritis. We can still draw the fluid and look for crystals in an abnormally large joint with nodules on it if we suspect they are tophi from gout, even if you're not currently in a gout flare. We may not see many crystals in it while you're not in a gout flare, but finding any and confirming that they're uric acid crystals can help us to make the diagnosis of gout and get you started on medication to prevent flares. While TOFI may be apparent clinically, meaning just by looking at the joint, sometimes they are best detected with an x-ray. Or other imaging studies may be more useful, including ultrasound, CT scans, and MRIs. Sometimes imaging is done not so much to confirm gout, but to rule out other conditions. Remember how I talked about gout in the spine before? It can cause neurologic symptoms in that location, such as numbness, tingling, and weakness in certain parts of the body. Imaging is especially important in this situation because it's very difficult to sample the affected joint with a needle in that location because there are a lot of bones in the spine that can block the needle and also because we try to avoid risking damage to the many, many nerves and blood vessels that run along the back. Imaging is also important because there are so many other things that can cause back pain with nerve symptoms, such as a slipped disc, a fractured vertebra, abnormal curvature of the spine, an abscess, cancer, etc. So the best imaging we can get for the spine, the better, both to rule in or out gout, but also to evaluate for other suspected causes for those symptoms. We can sometimes estimate the likelihood of gout by evaluating for particular risk factors and signs or symptoms without even doing a joint fluid analysis. The presence or absence of these features helps us to determine the likelihood of a joint pain or swelling being from gout and therefore can help us to decide whether or not to move forward with getting fluid from the joint with a needle or imaging, if that's even necessary, or it can also help us to decide if we should just start a patient on gout medicine now or wait until later until other studies are done to confirm the diagnosis. Some of these features are the sex of the patient, a previously reported arthritis flare, onset of symptoms within the last one day, redness of the joint, a history of high blood pressure or another cardiovascular illness, a blood uric acid level that's elevated, or involvement of the joint of the big toe, just because it's a common location. Each of those factors comes with a certain score, and based upon that total score, patients can be identified as having low, intermediate, or high probability of gout. I do want to note that it may be odd to hear me say that we may not start certain patients on medications for gout until the diagnosis is confirmed, and sometimes even in the setting of known gout. Remember that every medication comes with side effects, and these drugs can be expensive, and that's why so much thought goes into whether or not to prescribe it. This is further complicated by the fact that people can have other medical conditions and be on other medications which interact with gout drugs, and we never want to make another condition worse if we can avoid it.
Now lastly, we'll talk about the treatment of gout. There are several medications for gout, and they can be for prevention of a flare, for treating a flare, or both. And they primarily work by decreasing the amount of uric acid in the bloodstream. In the setting of a flare, you will commonly hear that people are told to take non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications, such as ibuprofen, naproxen, or a prescription called indomethacin, which is in the same drug class as those first two. Although this sounds simple, it is truly sometimes all that's needed. And if that doesn't work, or if there's some medical reason a person cannot take those medications, then we move on to medications like oral steroids and colchicine. Occasionally, we have to do steroid injections into the affected joint, but every time you stick a needle inside of the body, there is a risk of causing infection because you're carrying bacteria from the skin directly into the bloodstream. With a joint injection, you could take bacteria directly into the joint space, which is supposed to be sterile and which can be very difficult to treat if it does get infected. So all that being said, we try to resort to steroid injections only when nothing else has worked or if there's some reason you cannot try other medications or if the patient has had severe side effects or allergies to the other medications. Something else that helps us to make our decision is what joints are affected and how many. If several joints are affected, it may not be a good idea to inject all of them because too much of a steroid via those injections can have side effects in addition to the risk of an infection. In those cases, we may opt for an oral medication so that all of these joints, and especially if they're small and hard to get to, can be relieved. There are also several medications to prevent gout flares, like allopurinol, febuxostat, probenicid, and others. Sometimes medications for other medical conditions can be helpful for reducing uric acid levels in the bloodstream too, like certain blood pressure medications. And this could influence the decision of your doctor in terms of treating your other illnesses. If it looks like we can help more than one condition with just one medicine, and if the benefit outweighs any potential side effects, then we may choose the single medication to make it easier for you to comply with the treatment and to avoid drug interactions. This brings us to the end of the ExplainMD episode on gout. If you have any questions or if you need me to further expand on anything we discussed today, please feel free to email us at explainmd22 at gmail.com. Stay tuned for our future episodes. Please take care and be well. Sincerely yours. Explain MD.